Coronavirus NZ, a stuff podcast. What you been up to in the past week, Adam? How was chiropractic? Huh? Remember we banged on about it last week? You were heading off to chiropractic and we talked about how choirs around the world had stopped because of this whole aerosol transmission danger and here you were about to be part of the first choir in the world or something to be able to get together post-COVID. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it didn't happen. What? Yeah, the choir master got sick at the very last minute. Not the Rona, I hasten to add, but it got cancelled. Fingers crossed for tonight, though. Anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Thursday the 18th of June. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. We bring you the news, some of the quirky things we've noticed about this global pandemic, and then we slow things down to focus on one particular topic. If a week's a long time in politics, it's a lifetime in coronavirus world, eh? There we were a week ago, all smug, sailing along in level one, on the verge of saying we'd eliminate the virus. And then, and then... Yeah, those two cases announced on Tuesday really burst the bubble, didn't they? Well, not that we were in bubbles anymore, but you know what I mean. It sort of felt like everything was back on the table. And I thought back to that conversation we'd had with Professor Sean Hendy last week. Remember, he spoke about the risk to New Zealand of a second wave and talked about our vulnerability. And at the time, I remember thinking, hmm, yeah, okay, I guess we need to think about that. But today, it's a little bit, wait, back up the truck. What were you saying? In that same way, really, we've got Dr. Susie Wiles on the show today to talk about asymptomatic cases and infection transmission and things like that. And at the time we arranged to get her on, these seemed a bit like hypothetical questions in a New Zealand context, at least. But today, somehow, they seem a whole lot more relevant again. You know, I was just thinking this morning how very, very strange the world's news has become. Not the big stuff, Black Lives Matter protests or unemployment and GDP figures around the world or the latest horrible COVID-19 death toll. Those things sort of feel like regular news. But what feels strange, though, is we have all these incredibly banal moments of normal human behaviour that have become front-page news all over the world. I mean... Just think about some of the things that have been the subjects of serious and legitimate media interest in the past few months. In the UK, we've had woman drives to her second home. Man shakes hands when greeting people. Man visits northern market town with wife and child. In Australia, we've had people go to beach on sunny day. And in the US, we've had lots of people go to the beach on sunny day. And in New Zealand, of course, we've had man rides bike, man moves house, two women get slightly lost while driving, and person possibly hugs two women. Of course, these things are news. It's perfectly reasonable that last night on New Zealand Twitter, an army of armchair epidemiologists, psychologists, border specialists, and motorway navigators were parsing every burp and squeak about the unlucky pair who drove to Wellington while in possession of a lethal virus. It's just that every now and then, randomly, I'm struck by the sheer ordinariness the beigeness of these tiny but life-changing moments. And I remember what a very strange world we're living in. Yeah. In New Zealand, we've had it so good for so long, haven't we? I mean, it was almost like the health story of coronavirus was being pushed to the side. Then on Tuesday, bam. And it continued yesterday. I had this experience where I was driving on Wednesday afternoon listening to Lisa Rowan on Checkpoint. And it was like hit after hit. You know, more on those two new cases, confusion over who was responsible for maintaining the fortress of quarantine, revelations that it seemed optional for people in quarantine to be tested or not, which just seems totally bonkers to me, by the way. This Christchurch funeral where someone was allowed to attend really soon after arriving back to the country. The runaways who basically absconded after being given a pass on compassionate grounds. It suddenly felt like this cast iron border protection was in fact a bit, well, 
fragile. And it also felt like there was just so much news. And in that process, things get overlooked, don't they? Like the PPE report. The what? Missed that one completely. Exactly. Remember a couple of weeks ago we reported that the Office of the Auditor General was going to have a look at the handling of PPE. Personal protective equipment. Yeah, that's right. So they were going to check what had actually gone on about the stock levels and whether the whole process of handing them out was done properly in New Zealand. Yeah, well, the report came back in yesterday and it's frankly a bit shocking. So it turns out there hadn't been a stock take of the national stockpile since 2016. This meant in February, as the outbreak began, no one knew how much PPE the country had how much it expired, no one knew how much would be needed, and then there was confusing messaging about who was entitled to it or who should have it. And that confusion came from the top at those 1pm press conferences by the Director General of Health, Dr Ashley Bloomfield. In other words, it was a damning report that on any other day would probably, or should probably, have got a lot more attention than it did. And actually the news keeps landing today. So on top of those two cases from Tuesday, we've got another fresh case today. A man in his 60s who arrived from Pakistan via Doha and Melbourne on the 13th of June. He's currently in quarantine in Auckland. Right, email inbox. Okay, so Dennis has written to us on viruspod at stuff.co.nz about one of our bugbears, some might say obsessions, the NZ COVID Tracer app. So Dennis has a shoe repair business in Masterton, Jolly Good Shoe Repairs. But go and see Dennis for all your shoe repairs, Master Nights. Anyway, he said that he's got the QR code on display and that over the first 10 days, when he had 300 customers, he estimates only five people bothered to scan. As Dennis says, obviously this is a bad situation, especially if we think we have an effective system. So... We've talked earlier about the problems businesses have obtaining the QR codes in the first place, and if Dennis's experience is anything to go by, people aren't that keen to use them anyway. Right, next email. We've heard from Benjamin, who is a psych assistant at an Auckland inpatient unit. He says he listened to the podcast every day on his way to work through lockdown, and he says, I wanted to start by expressing my gratitude for your podcast. It brought some stability and familiarity to my life in a time when everything seemed to be falling apart in our wee nation we call home. Wow, Benjamin, you're welcome. And thank you to you and your colleagues for the essential work you do day in, day out, but especially during lockdown. Anyway, he has a question. In fact, he's got a trio of questions. What does COVID mean for our economy long term? What kind of projections are being made? And I know a lot of jobs have been lost. How is that going to affect our vulnerable communities? Those are all really important questions, and we'll definitely be looking at those issues as this crisis unfolds. Benjamin also has a plague playlist suggestion. It's a band called Cattle Decapitation, and the song is Bring Back the Plague. The video shows all the band members at their homes in lockdown with masks and gloves and things. It's clearly a stay home, save lives kind of message. Also, says Benjamin, pretty innovative metal band too. Okay, let's check out an innovative metal band. What could go wrong? Enough is enough. Go home and stay home. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, okay, okay. We get the picture. Thanks, Benjamin. You know... You've got to admire the demonic energy of the guitar playing there, but I can't help thinking the track is missing something. Some sort of, I don't know, catchier chorus or something. You mean, thank you, big potato? Precisely. 
Regular listeners will know that Play Playlist has been a bit of a mainstay of the show, although it's dropped off a bit recently. But true fans of Coronavirus NZ, those who are putting us in mixtapes for friends before we sold out and went mainstream, will remember that in the first couple of weeks we also had a slot called Famous People in Fiction News. And then we kind of dropped it because it was just too overwhelming, really. Well, this morning I woke up with a sudden hankering to play that music sting again, so... Today, in our very irregular Famous People in Fiction news, Juan Orlando Hernandez has got it. Yeah, he's the president of Honduras. He's in hospital and being treated for pneumonia. And he joins a fairly elite group of world leaders to become infected. You've got Boris Johnson in the UK, of course, the Prime Minister of Russia, Mikhail Mishustin, and the Prime Minister of Armenia, Nikol Pashinyan. We thought we'd mention those because, you know, it's a reminder that this disease is still raging, like really raging. The global death toll is nearly 500,000. One in four of those are in the US. And then you've got those second wave outbreaks, like in China, where the capital Beijing is under new restrictions because of a spike in cases that followed almost two months of no cases. We ain't out of this yet. No, which kind of brings us to our main event, our interview with Associate Professor Susie Wiles of Auckland University. She's a microbiologist and an enthusiast for bioluminescence. But in the past few months, she's become a household name talking about all things COVID-19. She's also done great work with the spin-offs Toby Morris, producing illustrated graphics explaining the basic science behind things like why lockdown is important. That work's been something of a hit, really. The graphics have been republished all over the world. We asked her on today to untangle a subject that's been baffling us for ages, really, asymptomatic carriers of COVID-19, and also the timing of when people are actively infectious. But first, we wanted to find out a bit more about why she does what she does. So, here's the interview. Hi, Susie. Hello. So, you're a working microbiologist, but as every single person in New Zealand has come to discover in the past six months, you're also someone who's very good at talking and writing about science. So, What's the first moment you realised you wanted to be a science communicator and not just a scientist? About 2005, actually. So I won an award for my research and uh, it was about the use of animals in science and the the place that I got the award from wanted to go public about it. And this was something I was very nervous about. Um, But they explained that actually what I had won the award for was around the ethical use of animals and how to use less animals and all of these kinds of things. And that was something that we really needed to talk about because there is this um, big problem about people, you know, thinking they know what's going on. (laughs) But when scientists aren't open about what they are doing, then, you know, that creates a a vacuum that can be filled with all sorts of misinformation. Mm. Uh, And so that was really... Really them spelling it out that it was really important that I was happy to be transparent about what I did and happy to explain what I did meant that I had to learn how to do that really well. I started talking mostly to school kids actually about my research, um, but it was really when I moved to New Zealand in 2009 that I really kind of ramped it up and so started to uh, do some blogging to learn how to write uh, you know, more clearly and succinctly and less scientifically, I guess. <laughs> mm. uh, and it's just sort of snowballed from there. So in many respects, I feel like I've been uh, training for this pandemic for about the last 10 years. Right. And so, and just before we move on to COVID-19, important question, what's your favourite bacteria or virus or greebly or bug or whatever you want to call it? 
That is like asking a parent what their favorite child is. <laughs> um, because they're all amazing in different ways. I mean, I guess that's the thing about being a microbiologist or why I'm attracted to knowing more about microbes is I'm kind of in awe of them. And I've been in awe of them since I was a teenager. You know, the fact that these small organisms can, you know, come into our body and then take over. I mean, the viruses turn our cells into virus producing factories, you know, and we can see we're living through how, just how disruptive they can be to us. Um, you almost got away with that, but you just have to name one, even if it's not your favourite <laughs> child. Name a cool one um, and very briefly say why it's cool. Uh, um, okay. Photorhabdus luminescens is, I think, the coolest. And that's because it glows in the dark and it lives in the uh, gut of a microscopic worm. And basically these two uh, act together to kill the larvae of various insects and then make them glow in the dark. All sorts of complicated reasons. It's all kind of amazing. And they're actually used as uh, biocontrol agents for getting rid of pests on crops and things. But if you're asking me about disease-causing ones, then um, not the coolest, but the one that really frightens me um, is mycobacterium tuberculosis, which causes uh, tuberculosis or TB, which is a lung disease. It is very infectious. And about, I think, one in three or one in four people around the world are infected and don't know it. They're like a sort of a ticking time bomb because it can reactivate at any time. And that is an organism for which uh, it is very difficult to treat. It takes about six months of antibiotics just to treat a, a standard normal infection. Um, and there are now strains of that are com that are completely resistant to uh, antibiotics. It kills thousands of people every day. Mm, we should definitely have a TB podcast soon, Adam, I think. Absolutely. But let's talk about the the virus of the moment, if you don't mind, Susie, and that's particularly about asymptomatic cases. And the reason I'm interested is throughout this pandemic, it's like we've had this invisible threat lurking. Right? That's what I've felt anyway, the idea that there could be people walking around carrying the virus without knowing it. But there's so much I don't know about or I'm confused about. So could you start with the basics for us and explain what is an asymptomatic carrier and do they even exist? It's a great question and you're you're not the only people who are confused because frankly it seems like most of the scientists and medics are confused too by looking at the publications. So uh, there is actually a really distinct difference between um, what is uh, an asymptomatic person and what we're calling pre-symptomatic people. So traditionally somebody who is asymptomatic is basically someone who doesn't have symptoms. And there are some diseases where people can be in this kind of carrier state and can spread a disease and don't know it. And so a classic example of this uh, is typhoid. Um, and everybody's heard of the phrase typhoid Mary, right? Yes. So Mary mm -hmm. was a cook. Uh, typhoid is a bacterial infection. It spread through uh, the, we call the fecal oral route. <laughs> so hmm. bum to mouth, basically. Uh, and Mary was a cook who either didn't have very hygienic practices uh, or had a combination of was somebody who shed bacteria but had no symptoms um, and was engaged in practices that allowed transmission of that bacteria, i.e. cooking. Uh, and so basically, wherever she moved to, there was like an outbreak of typhoid in that house. And then she moved to another house to go and cook for people. It's awful, actually. She ended up being basically locked away mm. because there was nothing they could do. She wouldn't not cook because that was her profession and she had no other way of making a living. Uh, and so she just ended up being basically put in quarantine for the rest of her life. 
So she was somebody who was an asymptomatic carrier and spreader of a disease. So the question we've had is, does that happen with COVID-19, with the SARS-CoV-2 virus? And it's been a very difficult question to answer because the other thing we now know about this virus is that people are infectious for a few days before they get symptoms. So technically, those people are asymptomatic at the time they start being infectious, but they don't remain asymptomatic, right? They develop symptoms. And this is really, really important because if somebody stays asymptomatic, it can be very difficult to see where they fit in the picture because you, unless you know that that person has been a contact of lots of different people who get the infection, they may completely slip by you know, unseen mm. because they never come forward for testing because they don't have symptoms. That's very different from somebody who is infectious for a few days before they develop symptoms, they develop symptoms and then they end up, you know, you become aware of them because they go and get tested or, you know, they pop up and need medical assistance. And then you can go, right, here's a case. Who have they been in contact with and stuff? And so one of the big problems with this is that everybody is using asymptomatic to mean both of these two different things, somebody who never develops symptoms or somebody who does develop symptoms later but was asymptomatic at the time. It's a really important distinction, but it's one that not many people are making, including the people who are writing about it. And this is really difficult because what we crucially need to know is how many people who get this virus are truly asymptomatic and how infectious are they and how many people are pre-symptomatic and how infectious are they and what kind of symptoms do they have? Do they have really mild symptoms or how many people have really mild symptoms and are they infectious versus somebody who might have really lots of symptoms uh, and extensive symptoms and then they are, you know, are they really, really infectious? And I've only really seen one really, really good study of this um, done in Taiwan because they had such a good contact tracing system Mm. that they were able to look at some cases that they had and they were able to divide the people and they followed them for such a long period of time that they found out who was truly asymptomatic, so who never developed symptoms versus who um, had symptoms, you know, later um, while they were being followed. And then they looked at the context of all of those different kinds of people and they found that I think it was something like maybe 10% of the cases were truly asymptomatic and they didn't find a single transmission happen from those people. Mm. Uh, Then 90% of people went on to get uh, symptoms and they then showed that of the people who only had contact with somebody when they were in the stage bef- a few days before they got symptoms, they some of those got sick, so showing that you could you were infectious before you got symptoms. And then they found that there were some people who only had contact with people in the first few days that they had symptoms, and they showed that those some of those people also got sick. So we are infectious in the first few days of having symptoms. And then they had people who only ever had contact with somebody after they'd had symptoms for like a week, and there were no transmissions from those people either. So basically what that suggested to them was that yes, asymptomatic people truly exist, but they don't seem to be very infectious. In that case, there were no infections, but there was just a small number of people. Um, And that people who have only had contact with somebody a week or so after they've had symptoms, you don't seem to be infectious then either. So there's this crucial stage a few days before symptoms start and and for a few days of having symptoms where people are at their most infectious. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's that's really, really interesting. And that says to me that we should not be so worried about asymptomatic people. The important thing is that pre-symptomatic people 
Yes, and they obviously look like an asymptomatic person because they don't have symptoms at the time. Yeah. But the important thing is they go on to develop symptoms. That's what's absolutely crucial. Uh, and the really annoying thing is that lots of studies are kind of coming up. In fact, there's, there was sort of one, I'm going to call it a review, but loosely I'm waving my um, inverted comma fingers around because they said, oh, we've gathered all these studies together. Some of those studies were actually just news reports um, that mentioned people being asymptomatic. I think I remember a headline of... There was a, a a Navy aircraft carrier yeah, and they were like, half of all of the people tested didn't have symptoms. And so that became a half of everybody who has this virus may not have symptoms. Mm. And the problem with these studies is they're not following people for, you know, a few weeks to say, well, yes, they didn't have symptoms at the time they tested positive. But did they develop symptoms a few days later? How many of those happened? And that's what's really frustrating is because it's absolutely crucial that we know are people infectious despite never having any symptoms or is it actually just about the fact that people are infectious for a few days before they develop symptoms? Those are really important things. That language is not being used properly amongst the people who are writing about these cases, you know, like the, the scientists and the medics and things. There's a really good review that's being done. It's like a systematic review, which is kind of like the best sorts of reviews you can do. And they are looking at all of these studies and saying, right, what's the language they're using? How long are they following people for? Um, and so far, what they are finding, so this is pulling all the studies, the, the proper studies that are actually asking the questions properly. They're pulling all those together and they're saying it looks like it's about 15% of people uh, that get the virus that will be truly asymptomatic. But And there seems to be very few uh, transmissions that happen from those people, as in people who don't ever have symptoms do not seem to be very infectious. It seems to me from talking to you that that uh, although I guess there's still a lot we don't know, but the asymptomatic we could sort of park to one side. But in terms of pre-symptomatic carriers and what we should be doing to find them, are we doing enough? The way that we have dealt with this virus, you know, the going into lockdown and then coming out steadily, we should have found those people right? They should have transmitted their virus or they would have been in a bubble and either got their symptoms and then, you know, uh, gone and got a test and stuff. Um, or if they didn't go and get a test, they should be out the other side now and no longer infectious, right? I don't think there are huge numbers of these people hiding out there. <laughs> mm. uh, it's uh, For us, it's about cases coming in at the border and then whether people are you know, in this pre-symptomatic stage uh, and who they have contact with. And the whole point of a quarantine is they should be having contact with minimal people, right? Mm, and mm. We, we do know all the things that we're supposed to do to prevent that transmission of infection from somebody, whether they've got that pre-symptomatic stage or whether they're in their early stages of symptoms, which is you know, staying away from other people, wearing a mask. So this is if you are that person wearing a mask, it will reduce the droplets that you spread when you're talking or when you cough or all these kinds of things, washing your hands, all of those are the sorts of things that will minimise the spread of the droplets if you're somebody with the infection. Right. Hey, just zooming out a bit, you've said before that the science of COVID-19 is like a jigsaw puzzle that's being done by loads of people at once and against the clock. So over the past six months, can you name a moment when you've read some new research or learned a new fact and thought, wow, that's not what I thought yesterday, or wow, that's not what I was expecting? 
I think it was the realization that people were infectious before they had symptoms. Mm. So for lots of infections, um, you know, people are only infectious when symptoms start. And so it was like, yep, okay, this is spread through coughing and sneezing because that's how lots of respiratory viruses spread. And that's why good uh, cough and sneeze etiquette, you know, sneezing into a tissue or, you know, not into your hands, those kinds of things are really, really important. And I guess it was that realization that actually people are infectious for these few days before. And so, well, then how is it spreading? Because if you're not sneezing and coughing, what are you doing? Mm. Um, and I guess it's it's a sort of a building, not only of this beautiful study from Taiwan that really showed, yes, people are infectious for these few days, but then there's been some, you know, incredible studies showing uh, like using high-speed cameras or using lasers showing just how far coughs and sneezes and singing, how far your droplets can go. And we also had this idea that, uh, you know, so when we talk or sing or cough, we expel droplets of different sizes. Mm. And the idea was that really big ones will drop to the ground really quickly. There were really, really small ones that stay in the air. And then there are sort of other sized ones. And they sort of, that's how they fall at different uh, distances because of their size. And so there was sort of like, well, you know, what size droplets will the virus be in? And so will they be dropping really quickly or will they stay in the air for a long time? And then there were, there's just been some really good studies showing that actually, now that we've got better technology, we can see how these particles change. And so sometimes it's not about the size. They create these little, um, there's almost like these little vortexes that can take bigger particles and move them further than you thought. So I think it's been a combination of studies that have just gone, oh, now we've got better technology. We didn't understand that at all. <laughs> you know, we, mm. we thought it looked like this and actually it now looks completely different. Mm. And then we can't let you go without touching on the extraordinary developments we've seen in the last couple of days with these two cases from Tuesday. And we'd better timestamp this because it's quite fast moving, but we're talking before midday on Thursday. And as of now, there are two positives and 320 close contacts. But from your perspective, how worried should we, New Zealand, be? So for us, having essentially eliminated or certainly, you know, being on the path to elimination, we know that the border is our weak link. So we know the virus is very, very rampant around the world and it's people coming to New Zealand. And at the moment, that's just New Zealanders, right? So New Zealanders coming to New Zealand uh, or people who've been granted an exemption who are the risk to us. And so our understanding was that they would go into a managed quarantine and there would be that would be minimizing the chance that there would be transmission from those people to the community, to the wider New Zealand. What we have obviously learned this week has been that that system has fallen apart quite dramatically. Mm. And we've had two people who have uh, tested positive for the virus who had left managed quarantine. It doesn't sound like um, they are a massive risk, um, but what it has shown is where the holes were in the system. And I'm grateful in a way because we really needed the plan to be tested to find whether there were any chinks in our armor, right? Because we are going to be in this position for a long time. You know, there are many countries around the world that are not managing this virus well at all. And so if we want people to be able to enter New Zealand, and whether that's New Zealanders or, you know, uh, I mean, anybody, we need to have a plan for how we manage that. And we thought we had a we had a robust system. You know, the public thought they had a robust system. It turns out that it wasn't robust. And now we know that that can be fixed because we're going to need that system in place for a long time. 
So that what we should be concerned about is the system, not so much these two positives and whether we're going to see a massive outbreak from them. Yeah, we shouldn't see a massive outbreak. And certainly the 320 people who are being considered close contacts my understanding of it is that there's basically everybody at the hotel, uh, you know, everybody who was on the flights with them. Actually, the chances of transmission from those things are very, very low. Mm. So subsequently, we've had other reporting that said, you know, actually, this has not just been these two cases. Yeah. Not that we have know about other positive cases, but people have been able to, you know, they've shown that there are other places where the system is lacking. That's what we need to fix. And so I'm grateful in a way that we've had the system tested because... Your plan is only ever as good as, you know, yeah. <laughs> this is this is why we do fire alarms and, you know, we, we do practice runs of things, right? We've never had to do a practice run of this. And certainly when the system was put in, the quarantine system, they obviously didn't do some practice runs. And so now we've had a, ah, right, okay, this bit is broken and that bit is, bit is broken. And so we need to fix that. One of my concerns still is um, what are we doing about uh, people who don't have to go into quarantine? So mm. I haven't had a really satisfactory answer about what the requirements are for air crew and things. Yes. So we have to be really aware of where the risk to New Zealand comes and then what are the processes in place. And what we found from the quarantine is that that process has not been robust and it really needs to be robust. That doesn't mean, though, that if there's a break in the system that we're going to end up immediately at level four again. What we have to remember is that one of the reasons we went into level four was because we simply did not have the capacity to stop community transmission, you know, to basically do the contact tracing and isolation because there were just too many cases. Mm. That system has now been completely revamped, right? You know, it's gone from a contact tracing system that was designed to deal with measles and tuberculosis. And so we've basically, in the time that we were in lockdown, there has been a massive you know, review done of that system and it's been massively scaled up. So even if we do have breaks in the system now, it doesn't automatically mean we're all going to end up back in, back in lockdown. It means that actually now we've had chance to put in place the system that will stop further transmission. But it requires all of us to be really still very aware of the fact that if we have any little odd symptoms, that we still say, hey, I'm going to go and get tested, right? We don't just go, oh, it's just a cold. Let's actually make sure that it isn't COVID-19. And that's also one of the things that these two cases uh, revealed was that one, there was a breakdown in that the um, the person wasn't asked the proper questions about actual symptoms. I think they were just asked, are you okay? Uh, and one of the people is somebody who suffers from asthma. And whenever she comes back to New Zealand, she has a bit of a flare up of her asthma. And I've spoken to asthmatics and they say, yeah, this happens all the time. You know, you go somewhere new or different you have different allergens in the air, which are the thing that your body responds to. And so you get this kind of tightening in the chest and various things, things which in retrospect could mask the symptoms of COVID-19. Mm. And so that, again, is just we need to all be really aware that getting a test is the really important bit because if you are positive, that then allows the rest of the system to jump into place and do the contact tracing and isolation of people who may have been exposed. Yeah. So it seems it's certainly not a time for complacency. And while there are some jigsaws that we've figured out, there's still lots that we haven't yet. So thank you so much for coming on and explaining all of that to us. It's been fantastic. Susie Wiles. My pleasure. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Thursday the 18th of June. I'm Adam Dudding, he's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Dr Susie Wiles, Alex Yu, Catherine George, Patrick Crudson and Carol Hirschfeld. 
You can find us on all the podcast platforms and on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email viruspod at stuff.co.nz. You can also support Stuff Journalism financially. You can do that by going to the link on the Stuff website. You know that one, stuff.co.nz. That's it for our first weekly show. See you back here next Thursday. And just before I essay a bit of Khmer, a quick apology for the noisiness of some of today's recording. It was tipping it down in the burbs today. Anyway, here goes. Lear high. <laughs> <laughs>